Time to get back to Hebrews. Do a few more. The message of Hebrews is Jesus is better. Better than what? Better than your old life. Yep. Whether that was a, was a godless life or even a religious life, in, in, like for, in the case of the people that were being written to, in Judaism, Jesus is better than going back to your old religion. And Jesus is certainly better than going back to your old godless, sinful way of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, be honoured here, we pray. In these next minutes as we consider scripture together. It's all about you, Lord. Holy Spirit, focus our minds and our hearts on the words of truth, but beyond them to see Jesus. We know we haven't seen him with natural sight, but we can see him through faith. And you can reveal him through faith. Please do that today, we pray. Amen. Amen. So remember that Hebrews 11, the whole chapter, is spilling out for us what the writer Paul says at the end of chapter 10. And it wasn't written in chapters and verses. That's how we've broken it up. The just shall live by faith. And then following the, the Greek version of the Old Testament scriptures, the Tuntin, he adds, uh, but, if, but if, he, uh, if he departs, my soul will have no pleasure in him. If he, if he goes out of the way, leaves the way, my soul will have no pleasure in him. The just will live by faith. Now, living by faith is a phrase that when I grew up with as a kid in Pentecostal church, people always said that pastors and, and missionaries and so on live by faith. In other words, they didn't, even, they didn't have enough money, they had to just, you know, get by. Yeah? That was living by faith. Living, depending upon money arriving from somewhere, otherwise you wouldn't get through. That, they, called, they kind of thought of that as living by faith. It's nothing to do with cash flow. I'm not into prosperity. Do you understand? It's nothing to do with whether you've got plenty or not. Or not. Living by faith is far, far bigger and broader than how much money comes through your hands. It's much more down to earth than that. I want you to notice again these two words. The just shall live by faith. Life and faith. Okay? And the two are set as equals. You can switch them around. Faith equals life. For Christians, for believers, life is faith, faith is life. Faith is not some corner of life, a department of our being. I do this and this and this and this and then I go to church on Sunday. God forbid we think like that. Dividing things into spiritual and non-spiritual, religious and secular. That is hypocrisy. That is lukewarmness. That is something that God himself hates. We live one life for the glory of God through Jesus. Life is faith. Faith is life. There's no division between the two. God's children, the just, will live their whole life by faith. And we've seen in this chapter so far with examples what that means to live by faith. It is to live righteously in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus, which leads to right behavior. Right relationship leading to right behavior. Examples, Abel, Enoch, Noah. It is to seek him in prayer, in fellowship with him, as Abel, Enoch, and Noah did. It's to be obedient to God and his, to his word. Examples, Noah and Abraham. To obey him. The, the, to think about a disobedient or a non-obedient faith is like talking about, a, I don't know what, it's called an oxymoron. It, it just doesn't work. It's, it's a nonsense way of thinking. Faith equals obedience. Obedience equals faith. In fact, in Romans, either end of Romans, beginning and the end of Romans, towards the beginning verses and almost at the last verse, Paul uses this phrase, the obedience of faith. We are not just called to believe some stuff, we are called to obey it. The obedience of faith. Then, these people lived as aliens in this world. Abraham and his family. Moses giving up Egypt. Living as a stranger. I'm here but I'm not here. I'm here but I'm not part of this because my, my citizenship's already somewhere else. We are already citizens of heaven, even while we're still having to get on with living on earth. We're children of God amongst a fallen generation, a, a people whose who, who lives are full of sin. That's not to kind of wave a stick at them. It's to say, we've been saved by grace, but we have to live this out still here. 
But so make, that makes us aliens, strangers, pilgrims. Living by faith is to be tested in our trust in the Lord. And oh, what a test God gave Abraham. Sacrifice your son to me, Abraham, whom you love. It's to be tested in our trust in the Lord. And actually, both Abraham and Sarah are spoken of in Hebrews 11 as being tested in their faith. Both Abraham and Sarah, severely tested in their faith. And then, with the example of Isaac and Joseph and Jacob, it's to live in prophetic hope. We, we are investing in something we may not live to see, but we believe that God will do it in the future. A huge outpouring of his spirit and a huge harvest of people to, through the gospel to his son. Maybe the, the conversion of our own family, of our own children, of people we care about. We are believing and praying for that. Prophetically, beyond even what we could maybe see in our lifetime. Give the example of George Muller, the guy who ran the orphanages in Bristol, great man of faith. And he prayed for a, a number of his friends. I think it was 12, if I remember right. He prayed every day that these 12 people would become Christians. And over these many, many years, one by one they did, except for one. Do you know when he became a Christian? At George Muller's funeral. George Muller's prayers were answered. Every one of them. But one was beyond his seeing, beyond his lifetime. So the narrative moves on today in Hebrews 11 to Joshua. Though he's not mentioned in this, in this verse, but it's about Joshua and Israel. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now that's a very brief statement of a very powerful piece of history in the life of Joshua and the, and, and the history of Israel. Like Moses before him, Joshua's own faith and obedience led Israel in faith and obedience. If Moses hadn't gone there, Israel wouldn't have gone there. And if Joshua hadn't gone there, Israel wouldn't have gone there. The faith and obedience of the leader caused the people to follow. Now, not all of them willingly. But it, it depended upon Joshua's obedience... And then those who were following, at least some of those who were following. So this headline here is walls falling down by faith. You could put it broader than that. Obstacles being overcome through faith. Think about this scene, summed up in a few words. The whole account takes like the first half a dozen chapters or more of Joshua. But I'm going to give you just the headlines this morning. Okay? I'm going to rattle through these. They're in your notes if you've got notes in front of you, but they're not up on the screen. So Moses has died. It's interesting, the Lord turns up to speak to Joshua and he says, Moses is dead. Like, like Joshua didn't know, no, no, you need, to, you need to know now, son. Moses is dead, you're the guy. <laughs> Therefore, you be strong and courageous. Right? And Joshua is now the leader of the people of Israel. The Lord speaks to Joshua and he stirs him to faith and obedience and courage. And Joshua then speaks the same things to the people. Not the Lord's told me, but he's telling you as well. He passes it on. He communicates the same, the same stirring, exhorting message. Come on, we've got a land in front of us. We've got to be strong. We've got to be obedient. You know, the Lord will be with us. And he then sends two spies over the Jordan into the land to the first city of Canaan, which is Jericho. In that city, when they arrive there, they are sheltered by a prostitute called Rahab. More about that and about her in a few minutes. And it's agreed between the spies and Rahab that when Israel attacked Jericho, she and her household will be saved. The spies are, she, she helps them to escape and the spies return to the camp of Israel. And the people of Israel then cross over the Jordan, not by wading through, but be, as just as God did at the Red Sea, the waters of Jordan, and it was in flood for spring harvest flood, were separated. They walked across on dry land, carrying the ark of God at the front with the priests. They followed the ark and walked across, the, across dry land with the Jordan split for them. When they get to the other side, they set up camp, and the men of Israel are circumcised. No one born in the wilderness years, 40 years, had been circumcised. And... Uh, Saw Thomas had by all. When they've recovered, they celebrate Passover there. It's the Passover day, and they celebrate Passover. And on that day, 
the supply of manna, the miraculous supply day by day of this manna, this stuff that they could cook into bread and so on, ceases. Now they're in the land. They've got to live off this land. And they begin to approach Jericho. So they're getting ready to take Jericho. And a human figure appears to Joshua. And this person says, sorry, Joshua asks this person who's just appeared to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you with us or are you with them? You know, in other words, you know, join the crew, join the crew or watch out, I'm, I'm going to have you, you know. Off comes your head, mate. But the messenger replies, no. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the Lord, captain of the host of the Lord. The messenger was actually Jesus before his incarnation, coming as the messenger of Yahweh, which he did a number of times during the Old Testament years. And the captain of the army of heaven appeared to Joshua. When Joshua realizes who he's speaking to, he falls on his face on the dirt. I want you to stop there and notice something. Are you with us or with them? No. I'm on the Lord's side. How many times do Christians think God's got to be on our side? Surely he's on our side. Well, it depends whether we're on his side. The captain of the Lord of hosts is not going to direct heaven's armies to support them in their chosen course. He'd come to tell Joshua his plan, the Lord's plan, for the coming battle. So be careful about, Lord, bless us as we do this. It's far wiser as saying, Lord, what do you think about this? Do you have a plan for this, Lord? How would you like me to handle this? It's interesting, you know, God turned up and we said, so are you going to do this or this? And the answer is no. But I've got a plan if you're interested. God's plans are always far wiser than ours. They often leave us humbled rather than boastful. He does things we could never do with all our intelligence and all of our IT and all of our whatever else. He just dumbfounds the wisdom of the wise. So don't be surprised if sometimes God comes and says, it's a good plan, but not my plan. Mm -mm. So the Lord then gives Joshua the battle plan. You're going to do this, Joshua. You're going to lead the people out to do this. For the next six days, you're going to walk around that city once. And the priests are going to be at the front, and they're going to be carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, and seven priests are going to be blowing trumpets. And you're just going to walk around the city, the next six days. And by the way, everybody else, shut up. Don't say a word. Then on the seventh day, march around the city seven times. I don't know how big the city was, but that's quite a march, isn't it? March around the city seven times. Ark at the front, trumpets blowing. And on the seventh time, you're going to tell the people to shout. And the walls are going to fall down. He told them before, this is how it's going to be. So stop there is with me as well. Why did they have to be silent? And I've come up with three reasons. Three things that God did not want on that walk. He did not want grumbling and complaining. He didn't want idle chatter. I suppose in nowadays that would be people using social media. But. And he did not want presumptive triumphalism. Walk around, oh, you Jerichoites, you've got it coming. None of that. Now the grumbling. See, the problem was the children of Israel were very, very good at one thing, grumbling and complaining. They were so good at it, God said, I'm tired of this generation. You're all going to die in the desert and your kids will have the promised land instead of you. They just complain and complain and complain. Can you imagine this? You're a slave in Egypt. They're beating you, you know, black and blue and raw, and, uh, you know, and, and they're giving you slops to eat. And a few months later in the desert, oh, if only we could go back to Egypt because they had cucumbers and onions and garlic. And, oh, we used to eat well then, you know. Yeah, you want to go and get beaten again? You want your kids to be killed in front of your eyes again? 
What are you talking about? But grumbling and complaining was so much part of the way they conducted themselves. God loathed it. Loathed it. He said to to Moses finally at one point, Listen, Moses, son of here, I'll wipe them out and I'll make a new nation from you. And Moses kind of, in a sense, stood in front of them and said, No, 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 no. If you're going to destroy them, destroy me too. That's called intercession. He put himself in the gap to, to pray incredible prayer. See, if you can't keep your heart straight, at least keep your mouth shut. And he didn't want them to chatter, natter, gossip as they walk. Oh, it's not day in it. It's all right. Yeah. Oh, where will your house be? I think I'll have that one. <laughs> he wanted them to stay focused. God wanted them, in fact, to say, "Why are we doing this?" To themselves. Remember, no talking. To the, why am I doing? Oh, because we're going. He's promised to lease the. Yeah, okay, right. Okay, this is what we do. Day five. Why? Why, why are we doing this? Because God's going to destroy this. Okay, right. Okay, okay. Here we go. Okay. Stay focused. Keep asking yourself, why am I doing this? The answer, because God has said. That's why we're doing this. Not being diverted into just foolishness. Then he clearly did not want them to shout the victory before he'd given them the victory. Now I know that's the opposite of what a lot of preachers will say. But there's a clear example here of the Lord commanding them not to shout, not to speak to the Jerichoites, not to be presumptive about the outcome. Because they had to do this faithfully for six days and the seventh day, and then the victory would come. If they quit on day five, guess what? We wouldn't be looking at the ruins of Jericho now, we'd be looking at a very ancient city. When the Lord acts, praise him, thank him, shout it. When he's yet to do it, don't be foolish and presumptive in this kind of faith thing that a lot of people talk about. When he is yet to do it, keep praying to him, wait for him, confess your faith, not in it, an outcome, but in he who will help you. We do not boast in our faith, we boast in the Lord. So for at least those three reasons, and if I sat longer, I'd probably come up with more, but that, that would be wearisome to you. God told them to keep quiet for six, and six times round on the seventh day as well as they walked around the city. But here's the thing. Old Testament is symbols of the new covenant, isn't it? There are symbols and pictures and so on. So there were seven priests blowing trumpets and there were maybe another four carrying the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. What are those symbols of? Symbols of the presence of the Lord and of praise and worship. So even when we, we're still facing the obstacle, we don't have the breakthrough yet. We don't have a, my old Pentecostal family and relatives that used to talk about the victory yet. Have you got the victory, brother? You know? we, the answer is no, we haven't got it yet. But we are praying and we are praising him and we are trusting him and we're believing him. Continue in prayer and praise him. Cultivate your fellowship with him. Cultivate your requests before him and make your requests with thanksgiving before him, believing that he is going to help you. So then, on the seventh day, there were some pretty silly looking pictures. This was probably the least silly one. But then on the seventh day, on the last march, the seventh march that day around, Joshua ordered them, to shout. When they shouted, the walls of Jericho fell, and the men of Israel ran in and captured the city. Finally, after seven long days. I want to put it this, this way to you. There was a whole lot of obedience and endurance before the walls of Jericho fell. A whole lot of keeping on, sticking at it, not complaining. That's seriously one of the reasons God told them to be quiet. By faith, faith marched out in daily obedience, as well as believing for the outcome, as well as confessing that God's going to do something. Daily obedience, day by day, walking the walk God told you to do. 
By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, if you think seven days was a long wait, what about Joseph spending probably 13 or 14 years between being told by the Lord and appointed by his dad as the the head of the tribe, and he knew he was going to lead that tribe and protect that tribe and be the provider for them. And after 13 or 14 years, when he spent most of those years in a prison in Egypt, suddenly he comes to that position. He's made the governor of Egypt and his family come for his help. And he's, and he's acting out, he's living out the prophecy, the dream that he had. But 13 or 14 years gap between those two, most of those in prison. What about Moses? Knew he was called to be the leader of Israel, the deliverer of Israel from, from slavery. And he makes a start. We talked about this when we talked about Moses. You know, he kills one Egyptian. And says, that's that's going to take you a whole long time to kill all the Egyptians, mate. He makes a mess of it. Just messes the thing up, runs away into the desert. He's there for 40 years until he really has given up completely any thought of what, it, what God called him to. One day God show, turns up and says, I'm sending you back. No, not me. No, no, no. Wrong guy. No, no, no. Send, send my brother. You know, not, not me. Not me. 40 years gap. What about this as a possibility? That the Lord doesn't even tell you how long you must continue in faithful obedience before the breakthrough comes. And you just have to keep going, keep working, keep praying, keep hoping. He just doesn't tell you, doesn't give you a timeline. By faith, the walls fell down. A daily routine of obedience, devotion, service to him. Seeing God's plans a week, a year, a dozen years, scores of years are not a long time. To him, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. So if you talk about God taking his time or being in a hurry, he doesn't understand your language. What do you mean? <laughs> hurry. What do you mean soon? God's plans in the way he handles time are perfect too, by the way. So there's a perseverance and endurance of faith. It's not instant. It's not quick fix. I know we're used to instant everything. You know, there was a time when, you know, you, you had to kind of have it dried in a packet or microwavable. Or, I mean, good, you had to spend an hour cooking. Or peeling vegetables or doing something like that. It's like, oh, instant, 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 instant. I think we've grown, up, grown out of that a bit now. Um, certainly if you want to live a healthy lifestyle, you won't eat like that very often. But I know too how TV ministries tell you about faith being an almost instant fix for practically anything. While they're asking you for their money, by the way. But that is not how Jesus taught faith. Listen to Jesus. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Amen. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, he's talking there about perseverance under persecution, in times of great trial and warfare even. But nevertheless, it's true. The saved... To talk about for a moment about something we call the, 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 the perseverance of the saints. It's a it's a, I believe it's a biblical doctrine. The one who endures to the end is saved, but at the same time, because God has really saved you, you keep enduring to the end. And both are true. But if you quit along the way, you can't claim to be really saved because you didn't endure. Yeah. The word endurance that Jesus uses there is repeated twice in once in 2 Corinthians, twice in Hebrews, three times in James. Endurance. He who endures. Faith has an endurance about it. Doesn't quit. Doesn't give up. May be beaten down, may, be, may fall, may, may have moments, days, hours, defeat, but it picks up again. It quotes that old scripture in the, the prophets that I love. Don't, don't rejoice over me, my, en my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will give me light. Today's not a good day for me, but he'll give me to a better one. There is an endurance in faith. Jesus taught us about endurance in praying faith. Luke 18. I 
I love this passage of scripture. <clears throat> now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times, now get this, this is what the parable is about. This is the reason for the story. At all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him, giving, saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterwards he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect this man, yet because this widow bothers me, she just would not give up, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she'll wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect, his chosen ones, who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? The answer to that, by the way, is no. I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? On the earth. That last question Jesus puts there is not, will he find religion on the earth? Will he find church buildings? It's, he's saying, will I find people who are enduring in faith, persisting in prayer, continuing on as Christians despite opposition and obstacles? Enduring, persisting faith. And by the way, Jesus is not telling us that our Father in heaven is a hard nut to be cracked just like that judge. That is not the point. He's telling us we are to be like that woman, to be persistent in prayer and intercession, making our request, just as that woman was in pressing the judge to help her. Persistent prayer. You know, a lot of us would like to pray one big, rolling prayer that fixes the whole deal. Jesus says, it's far, far more likely you're going to need to be praying day after day, day after day, until you see the breakthrough. Will I find faith on the earth? Not faith that boasts in itself, that thinks that, you know, volume and oratory will fix the deal when it comes to prayer. How loud do I pray and how many words do I use? But faithful prayer that keeps on at it and doesn't give up. So let's go back to Joshua. When Joshua and Israel, what they had to do for seven days was to endure, to do what the Lord had told them to do. And the ark and the trumpet speak of repeated prayer and praise to God during that time too. That's the picture that they represent. The point was made back in Hebrews 10. Just before that phrase taken from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. You have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Isn't that exactly what Joshua had to do? He had to endure and do what God had told him to do so that he would receive what was promised. And I, again, I, I, I propose to you the hypothetical question. If he and Israel had failed to do it, would Jericho have fallen? Endurance, obedience. Let me give you this in another way around. If you want to grow or succeed as a Christian, you must stay connected, stay on track. I put it this way. I don't know if I got that from anywhere else or if it's me. If you want to make progress, you must stay with the process. If you want to make progress, you must stay with the process. I remember when I started going to the gym, I fell amongst weightlifters. And they would encourage you. You've probably heard me say this before. So there was I doing my bench presses. Yeah. Some guy would come up and say, what's your name? David. Those are girls' weights, Dave. Come on. They'd put some more weights on there and they'd, they'd, they'd insult me and yell at me. To, I don't know if I was speaking in tongues or having a rupture. But it was <laughs> <laughs> they used to say there 
I wasn't trying to pump up. They were, and they thought I was. They used to say that, no pain, no gain. That's the kind of another way of putting it if you want to, if you want to think about athletics and bodybuilding and all those But let me put it this way, in a much broader way, you, if you want to make progress, you must stay with the process. Because when you opt out, you drop out. And it's a very dangerous thing for any Christian to imagine, I'll just stand still. Mm, doesn't work standing still. Really doesn't work. You might stand still for a day, because the Bible says in an evil day, stand firm. That's the day you stand still. But for the rest of our lives as Christians, generally speaking, we're either making forward progress or we're being drifting backwards. We're either sailing with the wind or we're letting the tide take us wherever it will. Yeah? Now these are facts of life, not just facts of the life of faith. In the Bible, you know, this Christian life, the life of faith, is compared to a race that must be run and a fight that must be fought. And you need to stay fit, you need to stay focused to run races and win fights. Real faith endures, persists. Jesus himself taught us that there is a temporary faith that quits when the going gets tough and a fruitless faith that is overtaken by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. You think I'm making that? That's the parable of the seed and the soils. Real faith, genuine faith, goes through tests and trials and faces obstacles and will not give up Amen. with the obstacle. And there are times I have to challenge myself, oh, I can't be bothered with that. And I think, come on, David, what do you mean you can't be bothered? You're called to a life of faith, which means dealing with obstacles, pushing at it, pushing at it, getting through, fix it, sort it. Um, I've said many times, Scripture calls us to be more than overcomers. You are not an overcomer until you overcome something. You're a boaster. When you overcome something, then you're an overcomer. When the obstacle is now behind you and you're into the next phase, you overcame something. How do you overcome it? By the word of your testament, the blood of the Lamb, by by your faith in Jesus Christ. Not by your own efforts. You know, say, oh, I did that. No, you didn't. He helped you. I wanted to do Rahab as well, because she's the next person we read about here in, Josh, in Hebrews 11, Rahab. And here it is. By faith, Rahab the harlot. That's an old word, isn't it? It means prostitute, Yes did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she'd welcomed the spies in peace. Remember I told you Joshua sent some two spies into the city. When they got there, they were welcomed into the home of Rahab who told them that the whole city knew that Israel would, would, would whip them, that they, they, were, they were goners, but they were going to do their best to make a stand and resist them. And she said to them, so here's the deal. If I shelter you, and if they, I help you then to escape when you, you know, as well, will you shelter my family? Can, will you make sure we're safe when the city falls to you Israelites? Because we know that God is with you. The story of you crossing that Jordan came to us. We know, we know we're dealing with a powerful God here behind you guys. So the spies agreed the deal. Rahab, when we come back, you're going to put a red uh, thread outside your door and, and we'll tell all the soldiers, don't go into the house with, where you see a red thread everywhere else. Bit, bit like the Passover again, marked with, with red outside. So there you work, there you go. That's what she did, that's what happened. So more than a week later, when, because they were marching around for six days and then it fell on the seventh day, more than a week later, maybe two weeks even, from Rahab striking that deal with the spies, the walls are crumbling down around her and she's, she and her family are sheltering. When they've, when they've sorted it all out, she's led to safety with her family by the Israeli warriors. This salvation by faith. Now, I, I'm not gonna, trying to be hard on Rahab, I just need to say this very plainly. Here's Israel, the people of God. Here's Rahab, 
living in Jericho. She's a foreigner. She's a prostitute. Yet, by faith, notice it says she did this by faith. By faith, she took the opportunity to be saved and to join the people of God. Now, here's some history for you. This is the royal line of Judah. Rahab married a man of Judah called Salmon. She became a mother and a wife. The other way around, really, wife and then a mother. <laughs> in, in Israel, Salmon married Rahab from Jericho. They had a son called Boaz who married another pagan, a Moabitess called Ruth, who again came and joined through her mother-in-law, came and joined Israel. And she was courted and married Boaz. Boaz had a son called Obed. Obed had a son called Jesse. Jesse's youngest son was called David. And who's descended from the line of David? Jesus is. So Rahab is the great, 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 great mother of Jesus. Isn't that astounding? Isn't that amazing? Foreigner, prostitute. Is that a good example of being saved by the grace of God? I think it is. What an inheritance. Maternal ancestor of Jesus. And she's mentioned in Hebrews 11 as a woman of faith. I mean, that's some inheritance. Even if it says she was a harlot before. By faith, Rahab was saved from Jericho, from destruction, from a previous life. Jericho could perhaps theoretically have surrendered to Israel and joined them, become worshippers of Yahweh, but they died in disobedience. So here's a very important lesson. Just because your whole town is going to hell, you don't have to join them. I'll say it again. Just because your whole town is going to hell, you don't have to join them. She was the one household in Jericho that was saved. Did you get it? By faith. Here's part of the message of the gospel of the good news. Because of Jesus and all that he has done, he's coming from the Father, he's being made flesh incarnate. His life lived righteously, obediently to the Father, his righteousness. His death upon the cross, his atonement. That's one word, I could use three or four or five. But. His being laid in a tomb, his entering into death. His rising from the tomb, his being risen and ascended to all power and all authority. Because of all that he is and all that he's done. That is good news for us. Why? Because your past does not predetermine your future when Jesus is brought into the equation. Amen. Now, I don't mind hearing people's testimonies and stories, but you know, there's a point in which it really doesn't matter what you did and what you were. And who, because when Jesus steps in, it all changes, doesn't it? Amen. Your past does not predetermine your future. The way your parents handled you or didn't. You know, the way, the, the way your teachers did or didn't. You know, the, the start in life that you had, you know. You know um, doesn't determine the outcome. Because grace changes everything through faith. Your sins can be forgiven. Your sins can be forgiven. In the time after the Second World War, of course, the the, uh, especially from 1948 onwards, the new nation of Israel, together with European countries, were very eager to round up all the, the criminals from the, the Holocaust, from the, the, the prison camps of Germany and so on, and, and treat them as war criminals and so on. And, and that, that pursuit of justice continued for years, right up to the 60s and 70s. And there was one, I think it was a man called Eichmann, who was finally arrested in South America and brought back to Israel and put on trial. And an American preacher... All the way in America, the Lord told him, go and take the gospel to Adolf Eichmann. And, you know, it's one of those conversations you can always predict, but you don't know what he's like, Lord. You don't know what he's like. Oh, in the end, he did. 
Reichman thanked him for coming. I mean, he had to persuade the Israelis to let him see the guy and so on. Thanked him for coming. Didn't make any obvious response. But at least that man knew that even days before his execution, his sins could have been forgiven. That's how big the gospel is. Now, you may need to pay the penalty in terms of human justice for what you've done. Do the time or whatever. But your sins can be forgiven you through faith in Jesus. All right? We unashamedly say that. Yes, it, in a sense, it does matter who you were and what you did. But it can be forgiven. And if we stop believing that, we've got to pack up and go home. That's the power of the gospel. It's the good news. You can start a new life. Rahab had made a living as a prostitute in Jericho. When Jericho fell, she left that life behind her forever. Within a short space of time, it seems to me, she was married to Salmon. You know, shortly after that, probably, she was pregnant with Boaz, a wife and a mother in Israel, recorded in the genealogy of Jesus. You know, Matthew 1, the bit you will skip over, she's mentioned there. You can start a new life through faith in Jesus. That's, this is what salvation is about. It's not an old life patched up, it's a new life begun. I want to put it another way to you. Your identity, your label, your badge can change. You know, when you go to a conference, they put a name badge on there so no one has to remember who you are. You know, you, you get so used to look at people's name badges, I can be standing next to Colin and say, Colin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking there, but. Colin, did we do the count this morning? Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, you look, you look at people you know perfectly well, but you read their name badges. It's like crazy. What are you doing that for? There's something about us as human beings that wants to put a sticker on somebody and say, that's, that's who they are. You know, and, and sometimes it's deserved. You know, some, you know, we look at some politicians and we think, that's what you are. Hmm. I was thinking about American ones particularly. <laughs> but by the, here's the good news of the gospel. Here's the good news of the gospel. Your name badge can be changed. Amen. What's been fixed on you, what's been true about you, what's been there all your life can be thrown away and you can have a new name. New name doesn't mean I change my name from David to Ishmael. It means there's a new identity. Yeah? A new destiny even. And in this too, I just want to say this. As a Christian, you don't have to be an ex-anything. And here's where I think, we, we've talked about this men's group particularly and with some of the guys that Andy and, and, other, and Joe and others are dealing with. People have come from a criminal background, they've come from a drug abusive background or whatever else. The problem is, you carry around in your mind, I'm an ex-so-and-so. But there's a point in which, having come to faith, having repented of your sins, having been baptized in water, having received that spirit, you need to have a new life and stop harking back on the old one. Amen. And certainly not going back to it to see what it felt like. You've got a, a new life to build now. A new beginning. And there's a danger in having a label that says, I'm an ex-so-and-so. Because it keeps that word, whatever it is, you know, criminal, drunkard, whatever it is, it keeps it there as part of your identity still. And actually, you're not that anymore. So I'm, you know, I'm grateful for people's testimonies, but... I think it's a serious mistake when people seem to make a living, a lifestyle, and are giving their testimony about what they used to be. Please build a new life. And there have been some people with, with notorious stories. I remember there was a lady called uh, Doreen Irving who was, wrote a book back in the 60s probably, or maybe it was the 70s, From Witchcraft to Christ. She'd been a witch, she became a Christian. Do you know... After, after some years, I think it was a decade or 15 years or so, she stopped being a Christian. 
I want to suggest to you that one of the problems was she kept going on about the witch she used to be. It's how she kind of made a living for a while, by being the ex-witch. Let me say this plainly to you. This is kind of like from my heart, like a, like a pastor or father. You don't have to be an ex-anything. You can forget the word. You can put it away. You need to know where you're weak in certain areas and be guarded on them. But you do not need to advertise yourself as being an ex-anything. Now, let me give you a scripture to back that up. Two scriptures, in fact. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's those who have sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, that's anybody who worships anything but God, nor adulterers, people who have sex outside of marriage but are married, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Whoa, that's pretty comprehensive. Now these words have brought me to tears on many occasions. Such were some of you. Paul's writing to a church in Corinth. You, some of you were these things. You had those labels. That's the way you lived. But you were washed by the blood of Jesus and by the water baptism. Both are implied. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. There's a big but there. That was the past. But the grace of God has met you and found you. And you've embraced it and laid hold of it through baptism in water, through confessing and repenting of your sins, being in water, being filled with the Holy Spirit. You now have a new life. You don't go back to the old one. You don't even need to keep confessing the old one. It may not help you. And the other one is 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Okay, many of us will know this one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You're a new creature. New beginning. Part of a new creation. So let the old things pass away. Since that's the truth, live in the truth. Let the old things become the old things. Passed away from you. Put behind you. Left to go. And live a new life in the grace of God for the glory of God. Rahab had been a prostitute, but she became a wife and a mother in Israel. Life can change in a moment when that moment is charged with the grace of God and saving faith is birthed in you. On Sunday, June 11th, we're having baptisms. People will act out in faith in Jesus that morning. The death and resurrection of Jesus, buried with him in baptism, raised with him to newness of life. They will wash away their old life. Ananias turned up to Saul, you know, and Saul had been knocked from his horse and blinded and Jesus had appeared to him. And one of the words that Ananias spoke to Saul was, Arise, what are you waiting for? Wash away your sins, Saul. Calling on the name of the Lord. Washing away the old life. Letting it disappear into history. Memory, yes. But present reality, no. Scripture says that a baptism is also... I've got to preach this afternoon on baptism because I'm over at Potter Street where Epping are coming up for a, their baptismal service at Potter Street, so I've got to go there and preach this afternoon. I don't ask you to come and join me for that one. There's plenty of other things you to do today. But the, one of the favourite of Rob, which used to quote it, Rob, Rob's favourite verse about baptism was this one. It's an appeal to God for clean conscience. You remember that? He wishes to quote it. It's an appeal to God for clean conscience. In other words, that the past, though you know it, you remember it, no longer troubles you. There is no longer an issue of guilt or shame because you recognize Jesus has forgiven you and you've acted that out, you've embraced that by washing away your sins in the waters of baptism. So every time you feel accused, every time you begin to feel condemned, you get them to say, no, Jesus died on the cross. I am forgiven and I've dealt with it myself by taking my stand in baptism, confessing my faith in Jesus my Saviour. 
So we're having baptism. So if anybody's not been baptized in water, talk to us about it. The weeks are getting shorter. We have two definite people for baptism, and we'll be talking with them in the next week or two. Uh, one maybe, we'll see. And uh, talk to people around you. Say, you know, you've been baptized? You know, if they have been, then why might you ask him? You can ask me the question, I don't mind. <laughs> the answer is yes, but never mind. But in the meantime, even today, I talked about this grace of God, this, 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 this good news, because I wanted to finish it on good news. I didn't want us to think you need to endure. That's true anyway. But Think of how great this gospel is. Forgiveness. Healing. Clean conscience. Pure heart. Don't you want that? Amen. Don't you want this great salvation? Rahab did not understand the smallest bit of that. She just took the opportunity that was there to be saved from her circumstances. And yet she was an example to us of what it is like to be saved by grace through faith. Taking hold of the opportunity. I want that new start. I want to be clean. I want to be forgiven. Let me tell you very plainly this morning. The way to find forgiveness and freedom is faith in Jesus. Because he has made them for you. You need to ask him. Take a moment now. We'll do that together, sure. Why don't you take a moment to ask the Lord Jesus himself to save you, to rescue you from yourself, from your way of life, from your past, from being lost. Ask him to give you new life, new hope, new identity, new destiny. For I believe I'm preaching the truth of God, that those are yours in him through faith. You need to lay hold of him And those things come with him. Amen. Take a moment now and make that prayer to him. Pray, Lord, that you'll hear the prayer of any heart that's opened up to you right now. He said, I need you, Lord Jesus. I need you to make me over, give me a new start. I pray that that person will be so convinced that this gospel is real and true that they'll be asking to be baptized to wash away their old life too and take hold of a new life in Jesus. We thank you that the work on the cross and in your resurrection is as powerful today as it was for the people who lived in those days when you did it. This gospel is the power of God to save, to rescue, to to, to bring into wholeness everyone who believes. Thank you, Father, through Jesus, your Son. Amen. Amen. We're going to...